Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. Today on Race and Democracy, we discuss one of the most important and controversial issues that still haunts the American imagination, and that is racial slavery, with one of the premier historians on that topic in the United States. Our guest today is Dr. Dinah Ramey Berry, who's one of my esteemed colleagues in the history department here at University of Texas, Austin. And she is the Oliver H. Radke Regents Professor of History and African and African Diaspora Studies, and really one of the foremost experts on slavery and gender in the United States. Dinah, uh, we're here today to talk about your award-winning book, The Price for Their Pound of Flesh, uh, The Value of the Enslaved from the Womb to the Tomb. Really an extraordinary book, an extraordinarily important book. Um, what made you interested in this topic? So I was actually researching how enslaved people were treated as commodities as part of my first book, Swing the Sickle for the Harvest is Ripe. And chapter six, which was the final chapter, looked at how enslaved people were valued. And it had I had monetary values for about eight to 12 different plantations in one community. And I was analyzing that in that last chapter. And the editors of the series and of that particular book felt like that, that section was just very different. And it didn't really fit with the social history that I had written about, about the labor and the, and the families in the previous chapters. And they said, you know, why don't you consider that for another book project? So I was basically given my second book project during my first book project. <laughs> That's great. Um, and so I just did more research after that. I thought, I, I want to know more about the value of the body. And as I was doing that research, I was collecting data, and I was putting it into an Excel spreadsheet, just the name, the age, the sex, the price, and any other characteristics I had of enslaved people. And um, a couple other things happened along the way that sort of shaped the project and took me in different directions. There was probably maybe two or three turning points. Um, the first was when I did a talk at Duke um, University, and Stanley Engerman was in the audience, <laughs> economic historian. And um, I actually was doing a talk. It was a political and economy um, society sort of uh, conversation, conference. And I was doing, they wanted me to do the value of enslaved bodies, but I actually was interested in how enslaved people took their own lives and committed suicide the night before or the day before sale. And so I was looking at how they looked at life and death and how they tried to circumvent the price that was put on their bodies. And afterwards he approached me and said that he felt like um, I was writing a book that he and, and Robert Fogel did not write and that he had some data for me. And, and for our, our listeners, um, that is the co-author of a really very, very important book called Time on the Cross. Yes. Um, which I think tried to do what you do successfully <laughs> um, um, decades later, but in the 1970s. Yes, exactly. And it was a very controversial book for that very reason, that they sort of... Um, they looked at how many times a person was whipped in the day and how um, how planters could be make profits off of enslaved people's bodies. But what was missing was the enslaved people's voices and their stories. And exactly. Yeah. So that's that's I was happy that he wanted to share his their data. And he did. I ended up going um, to Rochester 
Um, and he he donated like seven boxes of data. That sort of really got me started to look through how they um, came up with their ideas about slave prices because they had a, a section in their book that was really based on U.B. Phillips, wh- who published in 1918, American Negro Slavery. Mm-hmm. So this conversation about how enslaved people are valued monetarily has been going on since slavery scholarship was first produced. Absolutely. And, yeah. and it connects to reparations. I'm interested in the data um, for 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 part of this conversation because when I read your book, you humanize that data, but at the same time, the data um, is really, really important because it places this story into a wider history of capitalism and Absolutely. sort of economic development of both this country and the world. So I'm interested in hearing about the data. So the data was well, I had an interesting relationship with it because I could have kept going because I was I went through probably about 12 to 15 different archives, maybe, I'm sorry, about 20-some archives, 20-plus archives throughout the North and the South, looking for evidence in any type of record. It didn't matter whether it was a letter, a diary, a bill of sale, an insurance claim, anywhere where they had the value of an enslaved person's body, their name, and their age. And that's what I started doing. So I was collecting this. And one of the things, you mentioned the, the whole conversation about reparations. And people always ask me, like, do you have a platform for reparations? And I actually was thinking about that while I was writing the book, thinking, what would I say? Because I know that the material that I have here is useful material. Um, I never could come up with a platform. Like, I I would love to be able to design one, um, like a 10-point plan kind of thing of what we can do. I have ideas, but I I didn't feel like I I had something that was crafted and formulated in a way that I could add as an epilogue or add as an appendix to the book. But I do know that the material that I have, the companies that I name, the families that I identify, the universities and other places that profited and benefited from slavery are useful for those that are working on these types of reparation plans. Absolutely. I want you to talk about that because you really do name names. I mean, one of the most exciting but heartbreaking parts of the book is when you talk about uh, children who were enslaved Mm -hmm. and the values placed on children who were under 10, um, enslaved people who were 10 to 20, Mm -hmm. um, enslaved people who were under 40, but then over 40. Exactly. Um, And you really name sort of companies that that gained economic resources from the value of these black bodies. So in a lot of ways, when we think about a contemporary discussion of reparations, we often say, well, we don't know where would we, who would we, one, target? Mm -hmm. Um, How would we extract resources from them? It's sort of like the records are too fuzzy, Mm -hmm. but in (laughs) in the price for their found of flesh, you show that the records aren't fuzzy. It's pretty clear. They're not fuzzy. And um, I think if, if, if we wanted to really go at this issue, the first thing we need to recognize is that reparations have been paid before, not just with the internment camps, not just with, um, I guess what I would say is slaveholders received reparations. When their enslaved people were had committed crimes or allegedly committed crimes and they were hung by the state, mm-hmm. the state refunded the value of the body of the de- deceased slave to the, the enslavers. And so when we talk about reparations, I always say you have to know that historical context because people get up in arms about the conversation, I think because of racial tensions and race issues in contemporary society. But I would say slaveholders, enslavers received payment back for the death of their enslaved. 
Wow. So if we understand that, why are we so sensitive around these conversations? Because people always are saying, well, who are we going to write the check to? It's not that simple. I'm saying we can name names. The records are there. We have companies, um, organizations, municipalities mm-hmm. that have benefited from the institution of slavery. There are very few um, companies in this country from the 19th century and early 20th century that did not benefit from the backs of enslaved people. So we have both cities and we have corporations yes. who we can name who have contemporary iterations yes. um, who would be part of this conversation. Yes, and those same companies and corporations and cities do not want us to have these conversations. And I'll say that because in, in around early 2000s, there were the insurance claims. I don't know if you heard about that. So California insurance, Chicago insurance claims, where they actually had legislation that was passed that said you have to disclose if you had insurance policies related to enslaved people. Mm-hmm. And so they had to put those records up on a website or in a database, right? Um, ironically, during the time, I was teaching and I had a student that was working for one of the insurance companies that on a summer job. And I said, oh, this is great. This is perfect. I want when you come back from the summer, let me know, you know, where, where like, if I wanted to go do research, where do I go? Like, where does a historian go to do these, this research since they have to disclose it? And he said that they would not allow him to have access to any of those records. So some of these companies actually listened and they, they published the information. Some of them have it if you have, if you ask, but it's buried. So there's also sort of like social justice issues around that. They don't want to be linked to that today. And some of these companies have changed names. So some of the companies like the Southern Mutual Life Insurance became Southern Mutual Insurance. Mm. And that's one of the companies that I wrote about in in the book. And they started policies as early as 1848. And that company is still around today in Athens, Georgia. And can you tell our listeners, how how did you extract value from a life insurance policy for an enslaved African? How did that work? So actually, they started off with policies. When people started insuring their enslaved people, they were mostly doing it when they were being transported for sale. So let's say an, an enslaver had six enslaved people that he was going to sell. Um, he would then take out a policy, and sometimes it was fire insurance. Um, so it wasn't necessarily, it wasn't called slave life insurance at that time. It might have been um, boat and fire. That's when we mostly see it. Mm-hmm. And they would add, like you'd see on these, these, these ledger books that they'd have like, you know, transporting six enslaved people worth and they'd have a value. But later, after the 1840s and to the 1850s, those insurance companies actually became, they grew and they realized that they could make some money off of slave policies. So um, the one record that I used, I had, I think, 4,000 figures um, from just this one company. And they they sort of experimented early on on whether or not they were, it was going to work for them to use to have these types of policies. Um, and when you think about it from the planter's perspective or the owner or the enslaver's perspective, they're saying, if my enslaved person dies while I'm going to send them to the market to be sold, I want my money back. If but but if an enslaved person committed suicide or there was an explosion on a steamboat, they were those that was a null and void for the policy. So wow. they had stipulations about that in there. And can you can you tell us what was the actual value that you find, especially on the eve of the Civil War, and really for enslaved women, mm-hmm. children, men, mm-hmm. um, and and based on their ages, and, and how did that value translate to you know 2018? Like what? So what was the value? So the the value that I, the values that I showed in the book and at the beginning of each chapter, I gave like averages of each for each age range, like mm-hmm. sort of you know ten to twenty or what have you, and so I just and I chose the lowest value. Um, 
But the values could go as high as three hundred thousand dollars today for one person, wow, um, or as low as seven to ten thousand dollars, depending on what inflation calculation you're using. Okay, I actually used low figures so people didn't wouldn't accuse me of like of sort of inflating up yeah. for shock value. I said, okay, I'm going to ch- choose the lowest numbers. So the lowest numbers, depending on where you are and what age group you're in, um, I would say anywhere from seven to thirty thousand dollars. Wow. Per enslaved per, African. Per individual. Per yes. individual. Yes. Wow. So that means that a planter who owned um, 250 enslaved Africans. Extremely wealthy. Extremely wealthy. And sometimes they owned um, more, they had more value and wealth in the bodies of black people than they did the land that they were living on. Wow. Wow. And, you know, that's that's something that I don't think we really wrestle with today enough. I want to ask a lot of questions, but the the first one I'm going to ask is um, when you think about the price for their pound of flesh, um, how does this speak to contemporary issues? Because when I was reading your book, and your book just came out last year? 2017. 2017. Mm -hmm. um, It's really, I read it against the context of Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. I read it also against the context of um, memorials for Black people who were lynched, and we're thinking about Brian Stevenson's memorial, mm-hmm. the lynching memorial in Birmingham, or or in Montgomery, Alabama, right. um, and all these racial conflagrations that are happening in Ferguson and Baltimore. So, how do you think um, this study and this kind of work really speaks to the current moment? It did for me, uh, and you know, when we think about teaching our students, you know, we talk about historiography, and part of historiography is understanding the moment that influences what the kinds of questions people are asking when they write the books that they write. Right? Absolutely. And so, this is the backdrop which you've just described: the Black Lives Matter movement, the the police killing of black people, unarmed black folks. Um, that is the backdrop of when this book was being written, and it was very distracting because. Um, I was finding quotes from enslaved people and stories from them saying, like in the aftermath of slavery, how it doesn't ma- my body doesn't matter anymore, my life doesn't matter anymore because I can no longer work for them for free. So they, you know, the, in the Reconstruction period where formerly enslaved people were trying to negotiate labor contracts, you know, they were barely getting paid anything to go. You know, they, that's how the whole system of debt peonage and and sharecropping evolved. That they were still working for some of the same people that they had been enslaved by during slavery, and so. But they had less value. Absolutely. And why did they have less value? Because they had to be paid for their labor. So as free labor, they actually had less value, but as slave labor, they had extraordinary value, but that value didn't come back to them. No, it never did, and it still hasn't. And that's what I would say when you look at the Black Lives Matter and the moment, the historical moment, which we have not named. You know, I don't know what we'll call it, um, but we will call this moment something. Absolutely. We will. And and um, when we look back at this moment, you cannot... Um, you have to look at the connection to slavery from my perspective. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a slavery scholar, but there is a devaluation that is occurring today to black bodies. And I think that devaluation comes from having to pay for the labor, whereas during enslavement, it was unpaid labor and their bodies were valued. And enslaved people recognize that and formerly enslaved people recognize that in the post-slavery era. And I think that is a really important moment. What we're seeing now, I would argue that in the contemporary moment, that those that are incarcerated are experiencing forms of enslavement, um, modern forms of enslavement, and the way that their bodies are being treated in, in incarcerated spaces. The way that I think I think there's there's a parallel there there to what happened during slavery. And I want you to discuss that more because I think 
we often think about mass incarceration as um, now in the parlance of Michelle Alexander, the new Jim Crow, but we don't necessarily think about it in the politics of enslavement, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And the way in which mass incarceration actually provides um, arguably more value for Black bodies that are incarcerated and poor than those who are not incarcerated and who are also poor. Exactly. Well, I think what we're missing today is that um, incarcerated people are being put to work. They're working on formerly enslaved plantations. You know, if you know about the Louisiana penitentiary, some of them had sugar. Angola. Yeah, Angola had a sugar plantation on, you know, on the spot. Today, they're making stuff like clothing. Uh, It's not just license plates like in the 80s and the 90s, but they're making products and not really being paid much. So it's a similar form of labor that's happening behind bars. And we can't even from from those of us that are on this side of the of, of the of the prison, we there's like la- there's a lack of communication in terms of like justice for those that are behind bars. Like so, for instance, if we knew more about the conditions inside, and and I think we'd see some parallels to slavery. Um, and a lot of people that that do work on um, contemporary forms of mass incarceration don't like making that like that comparison. Mm-hmm. But I, I I think we need to think about some of those a little bit more because this is these are these are bodies that have been devalued, that are confined to a space. That they have to work and and on a schedule, they have to be. They're put on a schedule that they have no control over. They're they're let in and out of certain spaces in, within that community, right? Um, and it's 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 a very much a system of control similar to slavery. And I'm not I'm not equating incarceration to slavery, but I'm saying we need to look at some of the parallels that are there. And that leads me to my next question, Dinah, really about slavery um, in general, because you're one of uh, the nation's leading historians of slavery. What can slavery Um, teach us? Because one of the things we're seeing, even in the state of Texas, where we both teach at University of Texas at Austin, but really to Texas public schools, um, slavery is often a very controversial subject, even in 2018. We think about 1977, Roots, Mm -hmm. over 100 million Americans watched it in January of 1977. There was a sequel, Roots 2. Mm -hmm. Recently, there's been a a remake of Roots Mm -hmm. and 12 Years a Slave won an Oscar in 2013. Mm -hmm. But that, that remains the exception. Um, Really, slavery is not taught. Uh, Black students aren't taught about slavery. White students aren't taught about slavery. Latinos, other people of color. So one, I'd like to ask you, why should we really reimagine how we think about slavery in U.S. schools? And how would that reverberate um, to this contemporary moment? Well, one, I think it needs to be taught, and we need in, in K through twelve. This is the this is where I am now in terms of my external like research and and projects that I'm committed to, and that is really tackling the K through twelve education of slavery. Slavery as an institution was a large part of American history. It may not be a part that we're proud of as a country. It may be a part of our history and our past that people are embarrassed or angry or ashamed of, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about it. Um, it shaped who we are today. It um, without the institution, we wouldn't be the quote unquote world power that we are today. And how so? I want listeners to just a capsule. Well, I mean, first of all, you had free labor for almost four hundred, you know, three hundred, two hundred forty-six years. If you're starting at sixteen nineteen, mm-hmm. free labor. Who you know, African American enslaved people built buildings. They built. They they cleared land. They made cities. They they helped. Um, they were the lifeblood of the financial. Um, the financial institutions of this country. And that's not been recognized. So people think, oh, enslaved people just worked in the fields. That, they no. were sharecroppers. They, exactly. were, they, were, they were field hands. They picked yeah. cotton. 
No, they did much more than that. They built the White House. They built the White House. They were skilled, highly skilled people, um, and and they worked for universities. They worked. They worked as and fi- they actually had to work and serve as fi- in fire departments. You know, they worked for municipalities. There's a number of spaces. There are very few spaces that enslaved people did not influence during that time. And we have taught it in a way that shames black people for not resisting enough to make it out of slavery. And um, sort of covers up that, you know, I've had students say to me in class, not here at UT, but at other institutions, you know, 15, 20 years ago, say things like, well, black people should be happy because they were taken out of third world Africa and brought to America. And I assume that's the white student? Yes. Okay. Yes. And so it's it's always been this marker of shame for us. You know, mm-hmm. the late Derek Bell talks about mm-hmm. that and faces at the bottom of well. Mm-hmm. Malcolm X talked about it. Mm-hmm. Um, Septima Clark, Ella Baker. Mm-hmm. So, so black women and men historically have talked about it as a marker of shame until they find out the history. Right. So when we think about our black students, and then I'm going to talk about our white students, mm-hmm. why should our black students know about slavery? Because some people say they shouldn't know because it's too hurtful. I think everybody should know about it. But I think um, if people say it's hurtful, they don't know the full history. And I'll say this because when I wrote this book, The Price for the Pound of Flesh, I actually found stories that gave me power and gave me hope and it made me proud. Like it wasn't, it's nothing to be ashamed of. It's, it's, I don't think it's a shame on us in terms of African-Americans. It's a shame on our country that this lasted for so long yeah. and that people supported it. Um, but I think if you look at how, how black people said, you can, you can enslave my body, but you cannot take my soul. Absolutely. You know, and the strength that came out of the fact that 1 million people, I'm sorry, 4 million people survived slavery in 1865 and the, the kind of the, the torment, the psychological, the physical, the emotional, the mental, all the stuff that enslaved people went through and still made it through. That says uh, that says something to me about a strong people. And to me, that's like the soul value that I write about in the mm-hmm. book, that black people had a value of their souls and they came out of slavery. Yes, tarnished. Some of them dejected. Some of them bruised. Some of them depressed. I, I get that. And I'm not saying that didn't happen. But there was something inside of a number of them, a number of African-Americans that allowed them to say, I'm going to keep living. I'm going to I'm going to and some of them look forward to another day. They they kept thinking that justice would be served and they and they would say that. They'd say, "Oh, that there's a place beyond here where justice will be served." But I I think like for African American students to be proud that there's an ancestry that made it through so that they could have the kind of education and the and the privileges that they have today. And what about our white students? Why should our white students and really our white listeners and white Americans so much so often we hear the criticism that look i had nothing to do with mm-hmm, slavery mm-hmm. It, it, you know i'm i'm a new immigrant myself or my parents had nothing to do my grandparents mm-hmm, my great grandparents mm-hmm. we came here from ireland or mm-hmm. from italy or from germany or from scandinavia um why should white uh students know this story as well because it's one it's a major part of american the same the same reason why black students should um, to be quite honest it's a part of american history it, it helps us understand why race relations are the way we are. If we know that black people in this country have not been free as long as we were enslaved, mm-hmm. then that should, that should, we should sit with that for a minute and think, what does that mean? So we haven't even have reached the halfway point, right? Mm-hmm. And so we have racial tension, and a lot of that comes from this, this notion that black people are less than mm-hmm. because of the way we were treated, and because of not only after slavery, but then the Jim Crow legislation and, and all the black codes and different things that, that that have put us as African-Americans at a disadvantage. So the hundred year of racial Absolutely. segregation in the aftermath of slavery. Absolutely. I mean, I, I just feel like, and I tell my students this all the time, 
regardless of what race they are, I say, I say to my classes, you know, we have a long way to go. And people think I'm being negative about it. But I'm saying, you know, if you look at where we are and where we came from, yes, you could say that's progress. But we still have tensions that we're still seeing people being killed, you know, murdered in the street for no reason with nothing, you know, and saying, well, I felt like I was threatened. There's something there that, that connects back to um, an ideology around blackness and a devaluation of black bodies that comes in the aftermath of slavery. Now, I want to get back to some of these stories that you talk about in The Price for Their Pound of Flesh um, and, and, you know, from the womb to the tomb. Talk about some of the enslaved um, children and their mothers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you talk about forced separations. You, you talk about so much here um, and, and how you also talk about the, sort of the intellectual ability and emotional ability of enslaved people that even though they might not have been formally educated, they're very intelligent oh, people. Absolutely. Um, they loved their children. They yep. loved um, their, their spouses, even at times when they couldn't be legally wed. Exactly. Um, yep. They believed in family mm -hmm. um, and they believed in a different vision of American society that included them. So absolutely. I, so um, one of the things that I decided to do with the book was structure it based on the life cycle you know, of, of a person. And I, was, I did it that way because I was trying to understand what moment does an enslaved child, um, adolescent, understand that they're a piece of, that they are a, not only a human being, but also a piece of property? Like, and how did parents teach them that? And so what you were just describing is like, where is this moment? Like, what age, like, when do they recognize this, this dual value system of their bodies? And um, oftentimes, because Frederick Douglass talks about this in his narrative, you know, a lot of them didn't know they were enslaved until they reached a certain age. You know, they played around. They were, I was the white play, I was the, the pet of the white children, mm -hmm. or I was the playmate in their house, you know, and they, there was all this sort of equality, right? But there's always a moment around age six or seven where there's a separation, you know, where, you know, I think I talked about Jordan H. Banks, one of the young men in the book where he played with this playmate named Alexander, he called Alex, and, um, he, and his father kept saying, you know, um, Jordan, who was, was enslaved, his father kept saying, like, you know, you can't let him beat you, you can't let him hit you, because his playmate Alex started hitting him. Mm. And so he said, if you allow him, to, his father taught him this, if you allow him to keep beating you, he will never respect you. Mm -hmm. And so um, Jordan kept track of how many whippings he owed Alex, and he returned them blow for blow. Mm. And so he, he fought back, but it was, it was in that moment when Alex went off to boarding school, and he went, as he said, to scare crows in the fields. Mm. And he said, the dreary days of my boyhood began in the fields. So, like, before that moment, before that that period, he felt like a normal child, you know. Um, and then when he saw there was a separation based on race and based on, you know, the fact that maybe someone like Alex could actually legally own him. Mm. You know, you, you have that. And people people talked about this with the Nat Turner Rebellion. Um, you know, how... 1831. Nat, yeah, 1831 in Virginia, where Nat Turner said, don't spare any lives. You know, and a lot of people were upset about him and his comrades killing an eight-month-old baby, right? Mm -hmm. I think it was around eight months old. Um, but they were saying that, that even in the record books, you know, that baby might be their owner one day. And I'm not justifying that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, from their perspective, yeah. no lives could be spared at mm -hmm. that time. Mm -hmm. um, that's an expression of soul value to fight back and say we're trying to overthrow this system of slavery. So to go back to your question about life cycle and, and, and the parents teaching their children about them being commodities. They also taught them to hold their head up and that there was a part of them that no one, there, there was a piece inside their bodies that, that nobody could touch and, you know, hold on to that, you know, and I think about it, it's like a grounding that they gave them mm -hmm. and they had that throughout their lives and throughout and, and 
and even in looking forward to the afterlife, because there was some that looked forward to that. And when you talk about the afterlife, um, I want us to talk about uh, slave cadavers Mm -hmm. and slave cadavers, because I think one of the um, most eye-opening parts of the book was this trade in cadavers Mm -hmm. and how even um, deceased black bodies were exploited exactly. uh, in the 19th century for decades. Yes. I mean, this 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 goes on for decades. It goes into the 20th century, It goes too. into the 20th century. Mm-hmm. So I, I want you to talk about that. So, yeah, I actually first sort of stumbled on that when I was looking at, at how I was, I was focusing in on the valuation of bodies. And so, as I mentioned earlier, the valuation of people that were being hung or executed by the state, they were, they were appraised right before they were hung. And I kept thinking, well, what is the point of that? And that was so that they could be reimbursed their enslaved. So that's the reparations I was talking about. But then I found that they were, they talked about that when people were hung, they were put in these shallow graves and that there was a fight among the medical students for the bodies. And I thought, wait, wait a minute. I've been doing this research. I've been studying the history of slavery for, you know, 15, 20 years. What, what's going on here? And um, not a lot of people have written about Nat Turner being decapitated and medical students taking his skull and using it. And so what drove the research for me, I wanted to know like, what happens to the body. Okay, so the body is now commodified after death. And that, I added three more years of research. And all over medical libraries, uh, medical colleges, I studied the anatomy records of some of the most major institutions here that trained you know, generations of medical students. Can you tell us some of those institutions? Yeah, the University of Pennsylvania, um, the uh, Dartmouth had a medical institution, University of Vermont, Harvard, um, John, uh, not Johns Hopkins, yes. Also, um, the Virginia Medical College, the Georgia Medical College. And they, they participated in a uh, market in cadavers. And now I want to say this to the listeners, that the bodies that were being traded were not all black, Okay, and they were not all formally enslaved. Those were the bodies that I was interested in because I just realized that enslavers were still making money off of the bodies after they were dead. And that was something that just blew me away. Um, So there were unclaimed bodies in this circulation. So there were also white bodies um, from prisons and almshouses. But there was also an illegal... um, Well, it wasn't really illegal at the time because this was before the Anatomy Acts of the 1880s. Um, but they, the medical professors, the anatomy professors, needed subjects for dissection. And so they would hire or enslave. Um, some of these schools purchased enslaved men and then hired them to go then steal bodies from cemeteries or wherever they could procure them. They didn't ask questions. And they would bring these bodies back to the medical school. Were people ever killed to become... That um, happened in, there was a big case in Europe, in, in London in the 1830s, um, that, that where that happened, where people were actually murdered just for dissection. We don't have evidence of that, but there were people that were afraid of these black male grave robbers, um, Chris Baker from Virginia and Grandison Harris from Georgia, two of the figures that I wrote about. Um, people were afraid of Chris Baker. If they saw him on the street, they would sort of run and hide. Um, African-American families, you know, that were free. Um, said to stay away from him. You know, you, you know, he might take you and cut you up. So there was a, there was a there was folklore around that 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 lasted even in the in the aftermath of slavery as late as the eighteen eighties. Um, I want to jump. I've got just really just two more questions. I want to I want to jump to the future in the in the sense of um, this work has so much relevance for contemporary scholars, especially scholars of civil rights, mm-hmm. scholars of contemporary race relations, mass incarceration. Um, how do you think, really, uh, 
a bigger interest um, and, and taking seriously slavery can help uh, contemporary scholars, scholars of contemporary history, including urban history, mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. contemporary U.S. and really world history. I think it, it shows that um, history is not necessarily linear, but there is a continuum. And I think that there's aspects of of different historical moments that will, the way we talk about, the way slavery scholars write about and teach slavery might be useful to scholars of civil rights, might be useful to scholars of urban America. We're, we're doing more work right now, actually, on slavery in urban spaces. Absolutely. Lots more work on yes. that. And we're understanding, like, what does it mean that black people were butchers and they were working in um, in black, blacksmith shops? They were they were working in bakeries. You know, what does that mean? So, so not only is slavery infiltrated into urban, but the urban north as well. And that's we've always known that but not that's not something that's been known by the general population, right? The general general public. So it's useful to see the influence of slavery and the carryovers in other other time periods. Now I have colleagues, um, slavery scholars that think we should just focus on slavery during slavery, focus on civil rights during civil rights and that we shouldn't make these big sweeping jumps and arguments. But I'm saying if we look at, at cycles of history, you cannot separate everything, Absolutely. and we need to understand. Like it's like it's the it's the foreground. It's like you look at soil. It's it's the bottom layer of the soil that we're coming that's on the top today, yes. and you have to recognize that. No, absolutely, it's the foundational ideology yes. um, and institution of our entire republic yes. um, from yes. birth to to now. Yeah, and if you think about liberation movements, you can look at contemporary liberation movements like the Black Lives Matter movement. You can look at liberation movements from the '60s. You can look at liberation movements from the '20s and '30s. And you can look at liberation movements from the, from slavery, and oftentimes the rhetoric does not sound much different. It doesn't change. And what, what's so interesting, and I know um, just like you, I, I started graduate school in the 1990s, and there was an earlier generation who are about 20 years older than us mm-hmm. who started graduate school, and they were doing studies of slavery at the high point of both the civil rights and black power movements, yes. right? Yes. And so I'm thinking of... Um, John Blassingame. game. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of that that That's generation. That's my academic grandfather, by the way. Academic grandfather. That that yeah. you know. Um, um, so so Brenda Stevens mm-hmm. comes after. Mm-hmm. So what's interesting now is that we have a new generation who's going to be as equally interested in slavery as they are the contemporary. Because exactly. there's there's so much work. Your work and um, Sadia Hartman and mm-hmm. Vince Brown. Mm-hmm. And there's just so many of these different historians um, publishing work that in our time connects to contemporary uh, race relations. And I think that's going to be useful. Um, Brenda Stevenson always, she was always doing work in slavery and then in contemporary. Like she did the book on um, Life is Life in Black and White on Slavery. Who's a UCLA yes. <laughs> eminent historian. Yes, and my, my dissertation advisor. Um, but then she also did the work on Latasha Harlins because in the 1990s, while I was in graduate school, the Rodney King riots happened. And so that was, we saw things there that resonated with things that we had written and wrote, re- read about during slavery. So I think it's just context. And we always say you have to contextualize history. It's context and it's the historiography, which is the study of how we do history, how historians think about it, interpret it. And I think that when you think about contemporary moment, and I, I'm, I'm anxious to see what the students of today are going to generate. Mm-hmm. I'm anxious to see their work as we age through the profession, just to see, I'm hoping there's not as much disconnect um, and, I, and that we're really learning from the foundations that, that of the work that's come before us. Context matters. Mm-hmm. My final question, um, is there any hopeful lessons that we can glean from your most recent book? 
uh, and your study of slavery in general about racial progress in the future? Wow, that's a good question. Um, I think one is that the records are healthy and intact. You know, oftentimes when I was a graduate student and early career assistant professor, people would say, are you studying slavery? Don't we know everything there is to know? I feel like we've just, we keep opening up new avenues. Um, and I've said this recently, too, that the bones of slavery literally are coming to the surface. They're rising to the surface. We've, the construction, this was the construction in Fort Bend, um, the Fort Bend community in in Sugarland, Texas, mm-hmm. not too far from here outside of Houston. Those were, they think, were convict leased um, bodies, but 95 African-American bodies were, were discovered. Recently. Recently, like in February of 2018. Um, actually, in Bathstrop, Texas, not too far away from where we are here now in Austin, um, some bodies from an old slave cemetery floated up when we had the floods. So we're we're being forced to deal with this history. And I would argue in a creepy way that, like, those that were enslaved that feel like they want their stories told are rising to the surface. No, absolutely. In a way, the United States is a national cemetery yes. over the graves of black bodies, Native American yes. bodies, women, children. Yes. And it's really important— um, that we, we, we find out their stories and, and how we, they And we incorporate them in the history books, K through 12, and college level. And so that's why, that's what we need to do now is that the kids, we've missed a whole generation or generations of, of grade school children who've missed the history of slavery because it's just been sort of sugar-coated or, or just barely touched, or just sort of a quick little nod to it and then moving on to civil rights and happier stories of success and collaboration. And how does that harm us? How does that harm us? It harms us because there are, there are lessons from slavery that we still need to learn that we need to understand. And it it harms us because people don't understand why people are upset today, why black folks, why people of color, why Native Americans. There's a history behind land, right, with Native Americans as well. There's so many things that if we don't understand and know that context, we're not going to have any any space to understand it today. So it impacts our civic life as well. So our politicians should know this, our elected officials should know this. People who are part of PTAs yes. and, and board of trustees People should know about this History. People who write the textbooks, who make the decisions on what goes in textbooks, should know this history. And they should know it not because of what they were taught in school. They should know it based on contemporary research from trained historians. So the study of slavery is really part of the study of American history, but also U.S. citizenship as yes, well. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Wow, this has been such an education. It's great to talk to you. Thank you for uh, having Dr. me. Dr. Dinah Ramey-Berry, uh, who is um, an eminent professor of history and African-American studies here at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you for joining us, and um, we'd love to have you back. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode, and you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H. And our website, csrd.lbj.utexas.edu. And the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.